You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you want to start making your way to Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning as we continue in our series through Romans. Let's go ahead and read God's Word together, shall we? Romans chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. It's on page 1005 if you're using one of those church Bibles. If you're using the Version Bible app, uh, there's a whole bunch of verses in there, including this one. If you find the event, you can read along with us there. Let's go ahead and read God's words together. It says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way then... There is also, at the present time, a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see, and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and let their backs be bent continually. Let's pray. Lord, as we now come to your word, I just ask that you would speak to us in terms we can understand. Lord, that you would stir in our hearts. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes and that you would open our ears. That you would transform our minds to be conformed to your mind. That you would give us understanding. Lord, for any of those who, who don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, open their eyes. I, I beg you, Lord, open our eyes. Let us respond as you would have us respond to your word. And let us see it and know it and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so what we've just read contains a very powerful question. It's asked like this. Paul says, has God rejected his people? Okay, but don't gloss over the question. We hear that and we go, okay, that's, that's all nice and dandy. But the bite to the question, the meat of the question, is, is a little bit more serious. It's something that we ask when times get hard. It's pretty common. The question goes like this. Will God really keep his promises? That's really what That's really what Paul is asking. Or if we want to be so bold, we could ask it another way. And I'm sure many of us in here have asked it this way in difficult times. Can I really trust God? If he's trustworthy, then he keeps his promises, right? Isn't that what we're getting at? Is he really going to do it? Can I trust him? That's what Paul is dealing with here. And many of us, how many of us have asked the question? Most of us, maybe all of us, can I really trust For the Jews in Paul's day, the issue was a little bit more amped up for them. See, it it comes from texts they were holding on to. They were holding on to texts like 1 Samuel 12, 22. It says in that verse, 
The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then in Psalm 94, 14, it says, The Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. And they're holding on to those promises. Yet now we come to Romans 9, which we were in just a little bit ago, where we read that Paul told us that Israel rejected God. And that's problematic. And now they are not his people. However, from what we just read, we see that it's not a total rejection. They're not, they're not cast out forever. Some Israelites are actually among the elect. They're among his saved people. And therefore, not all of Israel was rejected. It wasn't a blanket rejection. And we see in Romans 9 and in Romans 11, and God willing, next week, that the rejection is not final, that there's still hope, that there's more that can come there. Okay, there's still an opportunity for Israel or those who have rejected God to be saved. Okay, this is a tough deal for those who probably considered themselves to be God's cherished nation. We're God's chosen people, right? If you're among those people, Paul's comments are going to be troubling. And they might have been thinking, well, God isn't trustworthy. God isn't keeping his promise to me. Or maybe God isn't, I mean, just, we can't trust that he's going to do it. He can't do it. He's incapable of doing it. Right? If we were to adopt the same misunderstandings that they were to, that they adopted, we might draw some of the same conclusions. God doesn't keep his promises. God is not trustworthy. But what Paul is doing here in, in Romans 9 through 11, and by the way, this is a significant section of Scripture in the Bible. This helps us understand how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit. This helps us put it all together. What Paul has been arguing in Romans 9 through 11 is to clear up these misunderstandings <clears throat> and to help us to trust God and to see the truth. <clears throat> I'm very... Very sorry, I was singing my guts out. Now my throat is really dry. Here's the point. Here's what I want us to see. God does indeed keep his promises. That's what Paul's seeking to prove. So my aim this morning is to walk through this section of Scripture and to walk through his argument with the goal that's the same goal as Paul's goal. Paul wanted to clear some things up. And I have no doubt that there are some in here who are wrestling with some of the same things, confused by some of the, the same difficulties. Some of you really want to hold on to God, but it feels like you're just holding on to sand. Can you trust these promises? Can you trust him? So I want to see that if we can follow Paul's argument, then maybe it'll help us to understand, like Paul was hoping the Israelites would understand, that God's promises can be trusted. I hope that we can see his proofs, his evidence, so that we can trust the one who made the promises, the promise keeper, God. That's my goal. We'll see how well we do today. You, you can determine that at the end. Okay, so as we examine Romans 11, 1 through 10, as we, as we see what we've just seen, Paul has provided us with three evidences, three exhibits, exhibit A, B, and C. Here's my argument. Here's my proof. Let me show you. Right? He wants us to see first... Exhibit A for him, <clears throat> as he argues, in a really sort of simple, linear, logical way, he says, I'm a Jew, and I haven't rejected Jesus. 
Okay, that's verse 1. Has, has God abandoned his people? Well, I'm a Jew, and he hasn't rejected me. So it's a very simple line of thinking. It's logical. It flows. Paul is saying that not every single Jewish person had rejected Jesus. And his proof is himself. And he could point to, to John and James and Peter and, and all those other Jews down the line. So if, if God had not chosen any Israelite for salvation, then Paul wouldn't be saved. You see the, you see the argument? In Romans 9, Paul said those who are saved are those who God chose. And in Romans 10, we learn that righteousness comes by faith and that faith is a gift of God. So because some Jewish people, some Israelites in his day were saved, God had chosen his people his saved people, and he's keeping his promises to his saved people. Following the first piece of evidence, that's the first argument. I'm one of those people. I'm an Israelite. God has not abandoned the Israelites. Here's a second proof, second exhibit. He argues that God's people are not those with national citizenship, but those with kingdom citizenship. Right? He says, God's people are those that he foreknew and granted this kingdom citizenship and brought them into their family. This is verse 2a. So he's arguing that the children of the promise are the people who God foreknew. That's a significant word. It's the ones he foreknew. Okay? It's really what he's doing. Is he's just making the same argument he just made. He's just saying it in a different way. Okay? There's an objection that comes out. Some people will object and they'll say, wait a minute. God foreknew everyone. God foreknew every single person. Or they'll say um, that God foreknew every single biological child of Abraham, except for Judas, not that one, right? but all the others. Or they'll say God foreknew whole people groups. right? He foreknew them, and, he, and all this was for specific people groups. And I, I hear the arguments. I, I've heard them. I've read them. I honestly struggle. I struggle to agree with the argument. Because when I go back to Romans 8, 29 through 30, I'm compelled by what it says. It says, for those he foreknew, these are the ones God foreknew, he also predestined. If he foreknew them, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, so he foreknew them, that guarantee they'd be predestined. Now he says, for those that he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, which that's salvation. And those he justified, he also glorified. There's a, there's a string here from those he foreknew all the way to those who will be in glory. And if he foreknew you, you will be in glory. That's what it says. So we can see that if he, if he foreknew all these people, if he did all this stuff, it was so that they would be saved. But Paul told us that not every Jewish person was saved. So that means he didn't foreknow every Jewish person. What Paul is arguing is that the children of the promise, that promise to Abraham, are those who are saved by God. They are those who are adopted into God's family by faith. Okay, not by physical birth, not by national citizenship, but by faith. Because national citizenship cannot guarantee your salvation any more than, than being circumcised into the covenant can guarantee your salvation. So therefore, God is keeping his promises. But he's keeping them to his chosen people. 
And those who are rejecting Jesus in Paul's day, Paul's arguing may not be among his chosen people because they're not his saved people. He's sort of redefining what they thought the chosen people were. Because you can't reject Jesus for yourself or be among the people who are yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and then also turn around and expect that you're going to be saved by him. You can't be a member of the kingdom and reject the king. Because it is by Jesus' perfect life lived in our place on our behalf and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension that makes it possible that we get to be adopted into God's family. That's what brings us in. Right? So rejecting Jesus is going to be a really big problem. Now, there's some who push back on me on this. They say, well, hold, hold on a second. They take issue with how I've presented this, and instead they say there are God's chosen people, people of the promise of children of Abraham, and there's also God's saved people, people of the church, things like that. And there's sort of two different things going on here. And I've heard the arguments, I've read the arguments, I see what they're saying, I get it. Next week, God willing, we're going to see how this continues to flow into this interesting illustration that Paul uses where there is a tree or a bush. And in that tree, branches are cut off because they're unfruitful. Kind of a picture of unfaithfulness. And other branches can be grafted in. Wild branches are grafted in. And all of them are sustained by one root. Not two roots, not two trees. One root, one tree. Here's the crazy thing about the illustration. The branches that were cut off, they can also still be grafted back in and sustained by the one root. But in that pushback that there's, there's this group and this group, I say, no, there's just one, one group and how they're all being brought together. That's the illustration we're going to look at next week. God has one people. God has one group of chosen people. They're his saved people. And to them, he keeps his promises. And that includes, according to Paul, Israelites. But it includes Gentiles too, Jews and Gentiles. And then finally, here's his third exhibit. Exhibit C. Paul shows us that, that God has always had a remnant of his people. There's always been a group of his chosen people. This is verses, uh, the second half of 2 through verses 6. The line of thinking here kind of goes like this. The Israelite who's objecting to what Paul's saying might say, well, I look around, I don't see a people you're telling me that God has a chosen people? Well, I see you, Paul, and maybe these people who are followers of the way, and they meet in that house over there, over there. But that doesn't seem like, like God's numerous people and all he was going to do. That just seems silly. Right? But notice that Paul, in this line of thinking, reminds us of when that was said back to God a different time. When Elijah said, man, there's only me. I'm the only one. And God says, hold, hold, hold on here. That's not true at all, Elijah. You're having a pity party, and I still have 7,000 people I've observed for myself right now in this moment who have not bent a knee to idols. And God was only talking about the people who hadn't fallen asleep, which is the Bible's way of saying they've died and they're waiting for the resurrection. Right there. He's saying, right now, alive today, there are 7,000 people that I've got. But God's got the people... After they've died and they're waiting for the resurrection, they're still his people, right? So that was happening in the 9th century B.C. 
Right, let's think about this for a second. How many people have been God's people from the time that, that God has been in the business of saving people? All those who've not been to need idols, profess faith in God. How many people does God have right now? That's got to be a lot of people. That's got to be a lot of people. I would say that's a great multitude of people, too, number, too numerous to number. And so when the Israelite pushes back and says, I don't see what's happening. No, 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 it's because you don't see what's happening. <laughs> there is a lot going on here. God has not rejected the people of the promise. He's not rejected the people he's saving. He's not rejected his chosen people. And to those people, he's keeping his promises. He's keeping his promises. Now, I feel bad for the Israelites of Paul's day that rejected Jesus. Could you imagine? I mean, in your lifetime, you might have actually been in the courts that were saying crucify him. You might have actually seen Jesus uh, hanging on the cross as you were passing by doing business. You've heard the stories. Those individuals were, were really probably struggling. They were confused to know what it meant to really be God's chosen people. But I think I can relate to them. I think I totally understand this. Years ago, <clears throat> probably 15 years ago now, uh, when I wasn't in full-time ministry, I was sent to Chicago for work. Did the work, got on the plane in Chicago, I'm headed home. I'm sitting next to a guy uh, for, on the plane with me, right? And, and, uh, and he says, hey, well, you know, are you traveling for work? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going home. Oh, are you from Salt Lake? Yeah, I'm from Salt Lake. He's like, hey, how about that? How about those jazz? Uh, you know, I saw that they're doing really good this season. He starts talking to me a little bit about the jazz basketball team. And I didn't really know too much about the jazz basketball team. So I'm like, yeah, you bet, man. You know, that's awesome. And he's like, oh, I just saw this thing. And, and I was vaguely familiar in the news about some trade or something that happened. I don't even, I mean, I didn't really know. So not knowing and talking with this guy on the airplane, what did I say? I said, oh yeah, you, know, just, you bet, right? He starts talking a little bit more about it and I'm like, well, you know, I'm from Salt Lake. The Jazz are, the jazz are Utah's team, right? And I'm from Utah, therefore the Jazz are my team. And uh, the conversation goes on a little bit. He tells me about how he went to a Bulls game. Just he was coming back from a Bulls game. He said, man, those Bull fans, they are great. They are some great fans. But you know what? He said, I really appreciate the Utah fans more than the Bulls fans. Not only are they faithful in the good times and the bad, not only do they really love their basketball team, but they're just kind, good people. And of course, I was like, yes, we are. Those Jazz fans, we are good people. Now, that didn't take me too far because the conversation continued. And I learned that this man was a fairly wealthy man who's a Utah citizen who has season tickets, you know, right down by the front. And he told me that he was actually going to be able to catch about half of the away games that season, too. And that's what he was just coming back from. Um, he knew every player. He knew every stat. He knew all the history. Right? He, he was a jazz fan. I was not a jazz fan. <laughs> So it would kind of be wrong to say just because I'm from Utah makes me a jazz fan, right? But that's what I was doing. That's what the, the Israelites were doing. They were just sort of riding on the coattails of <clears throat> their geography and their heritage. But they weren't really fans. They certainly weren't 
true fans. You can't be a fan of the king and reject the king at the same time. If you don't know the king, you're not part of the kingdom. That's what they were doing, that's what I was doing, and that's the problem. And that's what Paul's speaking to. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul's proofs, they're really easy to see. They're, they're, they, they flow, they're logical, they're easy. Right? They make sense. The Jewish people had rejected the king, therefore they're not kingdom citizens, and if they're trying to say, <clears throat> why aren't the promises coming to me? He's saying they're not your promises. They're not for you. They're for the chosen people. God keeps his promises for his chosen people. And those individuals just completely misunderstood what it means to be God's chosen people. Now, we can understand this today, right? We, 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 I know we can understand this. It happens in our context too, doesn't it? <clears throat> Lots of people in America call themselves Christians, don't they? Survey calls, yep, I'm a Christian, right? And they might call themselves Christians because they go to church. And they go to church every week even, and they might call themselves Christians because they read their Bible every day. They might call themselves Christians because they're in a small group. They might call themselves Christians for a huge number of things. They serve in their community, and they do all this stuff. The problem is none of those things make somebody a Christian. Those are things Christians do, absolutely, praise the Lord. But those are not things that make somebody a Christian. Jesus makes us Christians. It is by what Jesus has done that we are Christians. We have exchanged our dead heart and our sinful lives for his heart of righteousness that has the law written on it and his perfect life. Right? We have exchanged our death sentence for his righteousness. When that happens, he does something to us. He changes us. And all of a sudden, our affections are for him. And we love him. We want to know more about him. Then we do want to come and gather with his people who he's also redeemed. We want to worship him and we want to praise him and we want to read and we want to do things and we want to follow him. Right? We want to understand who he is. He really is ours and we really are his. He is our God and we are his people. And that's what happens when we're actually Christians and not just Christians in name only. Now those promises are radically changing our life and that's what Paul was pointing out to the Israelites of his day. <clears throat> I think Paul's proven his point. I don't think it's that complicated. God keeps his promises to his people, and these people were not God's people, the ones who'd rejected God. But then he hits us with this question. Verse 7, take a look at verse 7. He says, what then? What do you mean, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. What does he mean by what then? And what in the world were the Israelites looking for? What is he talking about? Now, we need to remember that what's happening here is Paul has written a letter that was intended to be read in one sitting. Paul is in a continuation of a discussion he's been having, and we're only looking at a little part of it. So we need to remember that it belongs in a bigger part. And what this is doing is it's pointing us back to what he already was, was saying and the point he's already making in Romans 9.30, where it says, What should we say then? He's just coming back to that point in that moment. And it was, it was there that he was coming on the heels of showing us that Israel had rejected Jesus, and because of that, they're missing salvation. And then it was his conclusion there where he said this, 
Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, they didn't find what they were pursuing. They didn't find what they were looking for. But then he says, but the elect found it. And the elect he's talking about includes Jewish people, the Israelites, those who were elect, and it includes Gentiles. It includes those who God gave eyes to see. Those who he gave eyes to see, they found salvation. The rest, it says, were hardened. It's interesting that Paul would quote Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4 here. It's fascinating to me. That's where Moses says to the people who, he, who God had taken out of Egypt, right, with the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, and the pillar of smoke and fire, and all that miraculous stuff. This is what Moses said to them after all that. He said, I got to find it here, sorry. Oh, he's, I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing. I'm just going to, got it. He said, you, you all saw this. You all saw it, right? You saw the pillar and you saw the fire and you saw this. But then he said you didn't see it. He said you didn't see it. Now what's he talking about? They didn't see all the, the pillar of fire and smoke and the frogs and the river. No, they saw all that stuff physically. But they didn't see it. Why? Moses says because to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand, eyes to see, or ears to hear. That's Deuteronomy 29.4. Obviously, they saw it physically. But that's not what they needed to see. Because they didn't have spiritually transformed eyes, spiritually transformed ears, and a spiritually transformed mind that was opened up so that they could see what God was actually doing. Paul is arguing the exact same thing here. It is not by physical birth that you see spiritual things. It's by spiritual birth that you see spiritual things. And it is not by physical birth that you are God's people, but by spiritual birth. Which is why Jesus, in arguing with Nicodemus, you remember that in John chapter 3? He says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. You were born into this Israelite heritage, but you got to be born again. And then Jesus says this at one point to his disciples. He says, blessed are your eyes because they do see. And your ears, because they do hear. For I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To them, or to hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. It's Matthew 13, 16 through 17. And Jesus wasn't talking about physically seeing Jesus. We all go, oh, I wish I could see Jesus. Then my faith would be so strong. He's not talking about physically seeing Jesus because he told Thomas in John 20, 29 that Thomas was less blessed than those who would believe without seeing. Those who believe without seeing are even more blessed than those who did see physically because we see with spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. Has God opened your eyes? Has he opened your ears to hear? Is he giving you a mind to understand? Now, maybe, maybe you've been in here before, and this just sounds like white noise, and I'm just up here going, blah, 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 and it doesn't mean anything to you. But maybe today you're like, wait a minute, that makes sense. That's God working in your life. That's God doing something in you. He's giving you eyes to see and ears to hear, and he's transforming your mind in such a way. If that's, if that's going on with you right now, come talk with me right after the service. Or I want to encourage you to talk to somebody 
who professes to be a Christian and actually makes you think about Jesus. Find that person, not a Christian in name only, but a Christian, and say, hey, help me me understand this. What must I do to be saved? I want to see this. Here's why it's so important. Because Paul also quotes Psalm 69, verses 22 through 23, which should really give us cause for alarm. In Psalm 69, David is asking, asking God to rescue him from his physical enemies. He's on the run. Please save me. And then he asks God to do something very specific to David's enemies. He asks them to make their table a snare. I guess be lazy. He asks God to darken their eyes. And he asks God to bend their backs. But what Paul's doing in Romans is he's linking that text to the Israelites who have rejected Jesus. And God is hardening. Paul is saying the people who are rejecting God, including those who are Gentiles, if they are rejecting God, they are God's enemy. That's serious business. That should be alarming to us. And just like you and me, when you were rejecting Jesus, you were his enemy. Remember Romans 5.8? God proves his own love for us in that we were still sinners, his enemies. Christ died for us. Nobody gets a special pass because of race or nationality. But neither does race or nationality keep Jesus from saving people. It's open to all who have eyes to see and ears to hear, all who would believe. And So if they believed because Jesus opened their eyes and opened their ears and gave them a mind to understand, then they will be saved, Jew or Gentile. And Paul has shown us plenty of Jewish people had done that, and therefore God's promises are not in vain. The Bible tells us that God will save people from every tribe, every nationality, every language, including people from the Israelites. Will that include you? I mean, like, really. I'm not trying to be flipping here. Will that include, will you be there? Do you know for sure? Not just because you call yourself a Christian in name only. That's exactly what Paul was dealing with. Will you be there? Just kind of, Chucking it up to I'm probably good didn't work for those Israelites who didn't surrender to Jesus. It didn't work for them. You've got to surrender to Jesus. Have you surrendered to Jesus? If anyone, if anyone in the history of the world thought they could get a free pass into the kingdom of God without Jesus, it would have to be the Jewish people. Any of them. What a great, hey, we're good, right? But without Jesus, there's no entry into the kingdom, even for them. But with Jesus, they can come in. I know some Jewish people who've converted to Jesus Christ and are saved. They're God's people. And with Jesus, you can come in and be numbered among God's people. With Jesus, we get into the kingdom. Without Jesus, nobody gets into the kingdom. But here's the good news. The good news is because of Jesus, 
Jews and Gentiles are coming in. They believe he is who he says he is. They're going to be raised you know, all the way from the grave, resurrected, surrendered to him, and in his kingdom. They are children of God. That is really good news. So here's the deal. If you're in here this morning and you're hearing what I'm talking about, okay, if you have eyes to see, if you have ears to hear, if God is transforming your mind, as we've read Romans 11, 1 through 10, one of two things has happened to you. Okay, This will either cause you to see that you need to repent from your own ways. The sin isn't helping you. That you need to surrender yourself to Jesus. That you need to turn to the Lord's ways, confess that He is King, and just believe and follow Him. You're seeing you need to do that. If that's you, if that's happening now, and you're going, what's going on? God's opening your eyes. He's saving you. He's calling you among his people. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to talk with God. You'll have a couple minutes here in just a sec. Just, or now, just talk with God. Say, look, God, I, I didn't see it before. He's like, yeah, I know. I just opened your eyes. It's not a shock to him. You say, hey, I was doing it my way, God. I was a blind sinner. But you opened my eyes, and now, now I see. And now that I see, thank you, Lord for opening my eyes, and thank you for for doing what you've done for me, that I could be one of your children. I want to follow you. But I need your help, God. Fill me with your spirit. Move me and and shape me so that I can follow you. I want to surrender my life to you, and I want to be among your chosen people. You can say that. You can talk with God. And if you do that, that's what it means to be a Christian, that you see and you follow for the whole rest of your life. So, okay, I get it. This is what we do. And here in a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And if that's you, you could take the Lord's Supper with us. You can call yourself a Christian, and I encourage that you do. Okay, there's another response to this. There's another response if your eyes are open, your ears are open, you have the mind to see. This is probably the case for most of us, I pray. We should be, we should be compelled to worship God. Anyone with eyes to see what God is doing in the reality of our own sinful lives Anyone who has ears to hear God speaking and leading and guiding should just be moved to worship Him, to want to know Him more, to want to love Him, to want to follow Him, to want to shout from the rooftops to all the people who don't see, hey, you got to see this. I just saw this show. I loved it. I told everybody about it to the point where they were all annoyed because I ruined the whole show and there's no surprises for them in the show whatsoever. I told them everything twice. Okay? When we love Jesus... It's that on steroids. If you love Jesus, you want everybody to know, spoiler alert, let me tell you how it ends, let me tell you how it begins, let me tell you everything about him. You need to know this Jesus, and you need to follow this Jesus. That's what happens when we're Christians. That should be our response to what we've just read. This is what Christians do. We praise the Lord. We love the Lord. We want everybody else to praise the Lord and love him too. We just can't keep our mouths shut about him. So if you're in here and you're not experiencing either one of these two things, man, come talk to me. Come make an appointment to talk to me and ask God to help you. Help me in my my season that I'm in. I'm struggling. Help me in my unbelief, one of the people in the gospel prayed. Help me to see I don't see. Lord, just ask God, show me. If you want to talk with me, we'll open up his word so that he can show you. We can talk through this, and I pray that he would open your eyes 
and open your ears and transform your mind to see so that you could be one of his people, so that you could be in his kingdom forever. Because I know we don't want to be found like these particular Israelites who are rejecting Jesus that Paul was trying to compel to believe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you do the work to open eyes and ears, that you transform, that you move us, that you stir in us. Lord, right now I'm compelled to think there are Jewish people in the world today who have rejected Jesus and think they're okay. God, let them hear the gospel, open their ears, save them. I long for the day when they can be grafted back in to celebrate the root, to be blessed by you, to be a part of your people. God, I pray for the, the Gentiles and those who don't even have the, the heritage to lean on. Lord, I pray that you would save them too. And God, stir in our hearts that we would, we would share this good news with the world, that we would see so many wild olive shoots grafted into your kingdom. Lord, that much fruit would be produced, that we would praise you and worship. And Lord, now as we seek to share in the Lord's Supper together and, and sing praises, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Move in us and stir us that it would be a right response, correct action to what you've done in us, a reaction, Lord, to the action that you're doing. Stir in us to praise you, to know you, to see you, to understand you. We don't want to be like the people who left Egypt and didn't see you. We want to see you. Show yourself to us. Speak to us. Transform our minds. And let our response be worship. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.